Welcome to Battleground Wisconsin. This is Robert Craig, Executive Director of Citizen Action of Wisconsin. Our usual host, Deputy Director Matt Brusky, is on vacation, brief, very brief vacation right now. But as always, we still have our Healthcare for All Director of Citizen Action, Claire Zouty. Hi. So we have a ton to talk about. And uh, I'm just going to get into it. We're going to get to Super Tuesday, never fear, and talk about what's happening at the presidential election. Uh, but we have a whole bunch of other issues. And we're going to lead off with one that has not got enough attention in Wisconsin, quite frankly, and that is the U.S. Supreme Court, Claire. They have decided to weigh in on the seemingly endless right-wing attempt to either repeal or nullify the Affordable Care Act, something which is a common sense, very moderate reform, and not all we need to do in this country on health care, but they apparently have really have a bee under their bonnet, to use an old phrase, on it. And now we're going to hear a third U.S. Supreme Court case on whether to throw out pre-existing addition protections, Medicaid expansion, a place for everyone to go to buy insurance that has essential benefits and subsidies to help afford it. So what's the deal, Claire? I was actually very surprised that the uh, Supreme Court decided to take up this case because we'd we'd heard um, just weeks earlier that they were not going to take the case up in their accelerated timeline. Um, and so to, to hear just now that they're like, yeah, we'll take it up actually towards the end of the year was a little bit of a surprise and, to me. And in fact, didn't the Trump administration ask them to delay? Now, they seem to have actually yeah. followed through on the intent of the Trump administration. Uh, if they, they could hear the case before the election, but they won't decide it until after President Trump is either reelected or not. Yeah, I think it's going to be incumbent upon us as advocates on the outside to keep reminding people leading up to the election what exactly the Trump administration is doing here and what the effects of uh, overturning or repealing the Affordable Care Act would be. Uh, I am I am hopeful that they will at least start hearing this case um, at a time when it'll be a, a critical point in the election um, so that we don't have to do all of the work ourselves. Um, but... Uh, but but either way, I mean, maybe this is a good up point for us, Robert, to talk about just how devastating um, the the repeal of the Affordable Care Act for, would well, be. Well, this is, Claire, as <laughs> you're pointing out, this is not just taking out one part of the ACA. They have found the right-wing judges, the politicians in robes, as I call them, have found a way to say that the whole thing is unconstitutional and I, you know, you'll get to in a second what's implicated, but I want to say the legal rationale, because our oh, audience yeah, likes no, to hear important. it, so let me just say a little on that real quick, and then we'll get to what, what would happen. At When the Affordable Care Act was upheld uh, by, uh, by the Chief Justice, John Roberts, uh, he didn't side with the four liberals on the court, liberals or moderates, or the real judges, I would say, uh, he, in terms of their decision. He made up new law. He decided that we didn't that, that the federal government could not condition its Medicaid money. The first time, no precedent, that the federal government couldn't condition its own money, and that's what made Medicaid expansion voluntary. And he said not that the Commerce Clause allows it, that is regulating business, and my goodness, healthcare is the, the tw 20% of the US economy, it's a business, okay? He didn't use the Commerce Clause, he used the taxing authority. So then now that the Republicans first stopped 
enforcing the fine for not having health insurance, which was in the tax code, and then removed it during the Trump tax cut. The suit says the basis for the one decision, the swing decision, Justice Robert is, Roberts is gone, and therefore the whole thing's invalid and needs to be thrown out. So this is classic where this shouldn't even be happening. The Commerce Clause clearly allows this. And I'll just say this to you. This is a horse and buggy view of the Constitution. They only apply it when it's, when it's in the interest of business or the, or, or, or the oligarchs, because they certainly adap um, adapt the Constitution whenever corporations want something or rich people want something. Uh, but the idea that the federal government doesn't even have the power to do something like the Affordable Care Act, well, we wouldn't have a, gov a, a government that could function the 21st century. So don't get too caught up in the legal arguments that are all little formal niceties and excuses. This is pure and raw politics under the guise of constitutional interpretation. But having said that, for most people, the biggest concern is not uh, kind of, uh, you know, this kind of desecration of the law and the Constitution that's being undertaken by right-wing activist judges in our country, but what would happen if they actually followed through on this and Justice Roberts flipped over to the other side? Uh, I, I agree with all of that. Um, and it, I, years ago, when I remember watching this decision come out um, about be, uh, upholding the ACA in the first real test of it, and I remember sitting in front of the TV and saying, it's a tax, of course it's a tax, it makes so much sense. Um, treat this like a tax. It's going to be fine. Um, and and to look back at old naive me ten years ago, or um, <laughs> thinking that, um, I feel kind of silly now because it's the exact thing that has left this beloved program uh, so vulnerable. And we need to call out structural racism. That Justice Roberts, with his completely novel, not based on precedent reading of things, managed to invalidate the part of the Affordable Care Act that helps low-income people the worst and, and, and helps them the most and helps people of color the most because they disproportionately, because structural racism, tend to be the very low-income people in this country more than white people do. They're low-income people of every race and every, every background. And so, therefore, this has a racist impact. Uh, but be that as it may, uh, that's all awful as it is, tell me what happens if in, let's say... Uh, the new uh, we it's February of 2021. I mean, it, uh, it looks like the presidents are either Trump, Biden, or Sanders, most likely, and then the Supreme Court does this. What immediately happens? So uh, there's a lot of things in the Affordable Care Act that we have begun to take for granted now that I think it's important we understand. Um, we're were rights that were acknowledged by the by the Affordable Care Act, um, and so we think that an estimated um, you know eight hundred and fifty thousand um, likely more Wisconsinites um, with pre-existing conditions would be affected by uh, losing the Affordable Care Act. Um, but there's lots of other things that, that are involved that we don't think about a lot. So um, free preventative uh, care, such as mammograms and colonoscopies, um, something over 2 million people take advantage of, of those benefits every year. Um, prohibition of gender discrimination. So I'm um, saying that you can't be charged more for your health care be, uh, insurance because you are a woman. Um, prohibition of age discrimination. So saying that um, you, know, you can't be charged a, a higher rate again because you um, it, are it, an older American. And it limits how much more. You could charge a little more, but not 
20 times more. Yes, thank, thank yeah. you. No, that's that's a very important yeah. uh, qualification there. Um, but also lifetime and annual limits are illegal now, and they were not before. Can you imagine being somebody with a complex illness and your insurance company says, oh, sorry, you we've paid out as much as we'll pay for your entire life. I mean, that's a death sentence, basically, for some folks. So it's really important to keep these uh, protections held. Um, and so a study by the Urban Institute, which is a really, like, one of the most credible, not even nonpartisan, but non-ideological, just you know, just straight shooting um, public policy and economic think tanks. Um, neither left nor right. Neither left nor right. Um, has an estimate that 153,000 Wisconsinites would lose their health care coverage if the Affordable Care Act were struck down. Um, and that is, that is just an astounding number. 20 million in the United States and then 852,000 to 2.4 million Wisconsinites with pre-existing conditions would face discrimination again. And pre-existing condition, conditions is what sunk Scott Walker but consider it the leading wedge on health care, because it's an outrage that describes the rest. For-profit corporations deciding to throw you off your coverage and deny it to you for their bottom line, no matter what the con consequences for you or your family. Yeah, and for folks who might think, you know, why, why are we talking about this? It's scary and there's nothing I can do about it because it's the courts and, and I don't have control over the U.S. Supreme Court. I want to just hearken back to what Robert said, which is, you know, these judges... You know, they want to present themselves as, um, and, and they do present themselves as nonpartisan folks and folks who are independent of the political system, but they're human beings. And, and um, you know, they, they are aware of the general tone of the country. And it is important for us to fight for, for what we protect because we never know if that could factor into the dis their decision-making process. There's really good research on this that says that judges are absolutely affected by public opinion. In fact, they're... And so we would need to yeah. have incredible public movement that we will try to help lead with other partners and we need all of you involved in uh, when the when this oral arguments occur and when this happens and then you're gonna have to put pressure all of you because you're the ones who have power not us here uh, and that is on the legislature to replace everything they can and they've done nothing this cycle despite this threat and you remember Claire the Republicans came in saying job one is pre-existing conditions because hint hint Scott Walker was unelected on it and then they did not do anything. Yeah. Agreed. Agreed. So we have a lot more to talk about. And uh, we're even, we took more time on that than we thought. But we're going to talk. It's an important issue, Robert. We're going to talk about the coronavirus a little, but that's going to be ongoing uh, story. So we won't spend, uh, uh, well, we'll just touch on updates. And then we're going to get to Super Tuesday. So stay with us after uh, with Battleground Wisconsin. Welcome back to Battleground Wisconsin. This is Robert Craig, Executive Director of Citizen Action of Wisconsin, and I am joined by Claire Zoutke, the Healthcare for All Director at Citizen Action of Wisconsin. Our usual host, Deputy Director Matt Brusky, is on a very brief, well-deserved vacation. So, coronavirus, we promised that. Uh, there, there are some updates. We're gonna, this is probably going to be going on a long time, so this will be a constant... Uh, uh, thing on the show, uh, Claire. What is what, what? What you want to talk? I think about an angle on the coronavirus that we haven't got to. We we, we will pass over for now <laughs> the increasing evidence that the Trump administration is not running the government very well at a t on an issue that matters a lot. And I think all the voters uh, who are afraid of the coronavirus should consider how good the ones who voted for him 
what a good idea it was to put a, re a reality talk show host in charge of the federal government. When you, have, and when you have an emergency like this, it has consequences. But you want to talk about a consequence that's not being discussed as much, Claire. Yeah, I, I, I don't want to get into scary details and whatnot, um, feed into any fear-mongering that might be out there around um, you know, sp the spreading of cases and whatnot. So instead, I want to, I want to make connections between work that Citizen Action is doing and um, the, the threat posed by coronavirus. And so uh, last week, I talked about how this relates to our prescription uh, drug reform campaign. And, and now I want to talk about how this relates to another issue we're working on, which is uh, supporting caregivers and the caregiver shortage. So I've been thinking a lot, a lot about this. And um, one of the places that um, the coronavirus has been spreading in Washington state is in a nursing home, which has been a real challenge there um, because folks are living in close proximity to each other. And they're also um, folks with complex uh, medical needs and, and folks that are already susceptible to, to illness. And so it's a, it's a particularly dangerous environment for them. Um, and, uh, you know, one of the things that, that folks have been saying a lot is if you if you think that you might be ill, you should make sure, that, and I said this last week, right, um, that if you think you might be ill, you should try to stay home from work if you can. Um, but a whole population of folks don't have paid leave at all, um, let alone paid sick time, and aren't able to take off of work to stay home. And those are also the folks who tend to have, um, you know, the lowest incomes and lowest wages. And so, you know, taking unpaid time off could be devastating for their families and themselves economically. And a population of those, uh, or a population that fits into that category is paid caregivers, people who, who care for folks in their homes and in um, facilities like nursing homes. Uh, for for their profession, for their livelihood. Um, and so I was thinking about how the coronavirus outbreak is is a particular challenge for them. And, um, you, you know, these are folks who, like I said, uh, cannot often take, take off if they get sick. Um, and um, if they do, that means that there are even, you know, fewer caregivers out there, which exacerbates the caregiver shortage, with, which we've talked about at length um, and how it exists in Wisconsin. And also because if they have to continue working while sick, are interacting with folks who have, like I said earlier, complex medical needs, folks who um, have might have vulnerable immune systems, folks that are already ill or elderly or disabled. Um, and so I think the... I think caregivers and people who receive care from caregivers um, are at particular risk right now from um, the the, the spread of this illness. That's already happening in Washington State, where it's more advanced than here, and uh, uh, these caregivers don't have the same protections that medical professionals and say acute care hospitals would have, and even those folks are getting infected, both in the U.S. and around the world, let alone folks who don't have those protections and are dealing with the population that is most at risk. We know that the, uh, that the, risk, uh, the risk tables for coronavirus escalate with age. And in fact, um, I think Washington State is saying that people 60 and older shouldn't go out in public if, ne if, if not necessary right now. So, yeah. And those are the same population that caregivers are caring for. And then a lot of these caregivers themselves may actually be in the, in the most at risk population. Yeah. And so my, my call to action here in the state of Wisconsin around this issue is that we have um, a task force that was convened by the governor that's evaluating how to better support um, both paid and unpaid family caregivers. 
Uh, and one of the recommendations that I, I'm sure that they are discussing is how to extend um, healthcare benefits and um, uh, paid time off to uh, caregivers. And, and I think they need to accelerate that work and at least um, try to move more quickly before the spread of this disease, the spread of this illness, uh, gets gets even worse, right? Like we should be acting as a state to guarantee paid sick time and paid health insurance um, or employee-sponsored health insurance uh, for people in the direct care workforce. Uh, and Because that's the only way that we're going to protect them and the people that they care for from this, uh, the, this re very real potential of succumbing to this illness. I, I think we need to take action right now. That is all what uh, today, because we'll be talking about this probably every week, that, that we'll talk about the coronavirus and COVID-19, the disease caused yep. by the coronavirus. Uh, but we will we'll, we'll, we'll check back on, in on this. But thanks for that. We were trying to provide something clear, and you really did that, that you're not hearing on the, on the headline news every hour on the hour. Uh, but now we want to jump to what we've been promising, Super Tuesday. And since we record on Thursday morning, we're just seeing the news, though it doesn't surprise me that Elizabeth Warren has dropped out of the race, uh, which I think she needed to do. Uh, and so and she is not endorsed. Maybe you, when you hear this podcast or, or radio show, Pottleground Wisconsin, you'll be able to hear it. You may know what we don't know now, but we're down to a two-person race. I know Tulsi Gabbard is still in, but she doesn't have a campaign capable of winning uh, at this point. And so we are down to the moderate wing and the progressive wing, each having a champion. And we don't know the full California results yet, but the delegate count looks like it will be within 50, maybe even closer than that, roughly speaking. I guess it'll be in that general range. I don't know which direction it'll move as more of the California votes are counted. Because that's going to, it's, it's kind of like the, they have, what, 56 congressional districts, or is it 54, Claire, something like that? And so there's an apportionment based on each district. So there, there really can be a big variation in the delegates coming out of California, which is the biggest state by far. But we had a fairly shocking Super Tuesday to many because of the quickness with which the moderate wing was able to reconstruct the Biden candidacy. And then, and with huge media support, quite frankly, from a lot of the mainline pundits and commentators, but no big ground game or advertising campaign, uh, Biden was able to win 10 of the 14 states. So Claire, uh, get, give us your thoughts on where things stand. I think that uh, Super Tuesday went for, I think, I think Joe Biden was able to do a few things on Super Tuesday. And so um, so one of them is, yes, what, what you talked about already. I also think that something we've not talked a lot about is because we're so excited about the candidates that we know we want to support. I sometimes forget that there was a whole swath of folks out there who um, not only were maybe more, were mod more moderate, but also had not made up their mind yet about what they wanted to do and or who they wanted to support. Um, and, and if it felt kind of unreal to me that, that there would be so many folks out there who, who hadn't decided yet, but I think that was very real. And I think a lot of those folks very likely might have defaulted to, to Joe Biden, right? You get into the booth and you look at the list and you're like, oh, I know Joe, and you fill it in. Um, and so I think, I think that helped him. I think he won a lot of the last-minute deciders. Um, I, I think especially in Minnesota, Amy Klobuchar's um, support 
got a lot of uh, votes for him in that important state. And, and apparently her whole operation was very effective, yeah. too, based on press reports. Yeah. Uh, so so that does not surprise me. Um, I will say it's, you know, it, it breaks my feminist heart a little bit that a race that um, that started with a record number of female candidates is, is now down to two men. Um, I, I, I think that was that was likely to happen um you know but but to see it happen sometimes makes me a little sad that said you know we st- I, I am glad that the race is down to um you know a progressive and a moderate so that we we continue to have a progressive strong pro- progressive voice um in the race advancing the issues that we that we care about and i don't think it's an accident that the two most established brand names you know because you Absolutely. know what you get with biden or with uh with bernie 100 percent uh came through and we do have now but with adding trump three uh heterosexual baby boomer men are one of those three is likely to be present and absent some huge black swan that's hard to imagine uh, but you do now have clarity and it changed the dynamic of the race i don't think i think it's amazing how biden was able to be reconstructed because they were calling him dead on the mat you know knocked out uh for weeks there uh so that's fascinating. Now, he did sweep a lot of states which are not going to be Democratic states uh, in, in the general. Uh, and we're heading to more states like Michigan, for example, uh, that, that are battleground states here. Then there, there weren't that many battleground states actually on the docket here uh, as, far as, the, as far as Super Tuesday. Uh, I think North Carolina and Virginia might be the only two. You might, I might be missing one, but it, not that many. And so... Um, we, I think the dynamic of the race has now changed and that it's, it, it, it's far from over. But I want to talk a little bit more about what happened and then, and then how we go forward after the break. So you're listening to Battleground Wisconsin. Welcome back to Battleground Wisconsin. This is Robert Craig, Executive Director of Citizen Action of Wisconsin, joined by Claire Zoutke, the Healthcare for All Director uh, at Citizen Action, and uh, Matt Brusky, our usual host. We'll be back next week. We were talking, Claire, about Super Tuesday, and we were partly into the conversation. I just want to put out two propositions to you and see if you agree. And, of course, you're a very independent thinker, so you'll feel free to disagree (laughs) where you do or to clarify or elaborate. Okay. And so one is uh, I think that the expectations game is way too controlling of people's perceptions of winning and losing here. And we need to like get a grip and think about this with a little bit of a longer term perspective. Because I think there was this hope, like for the first time in American history, a movement progressive candidate, one who ran as a movement progressive candidate, not a president who arguably like FDR became more of one once they were president or LBJ's domestic presidency, which was what, not his foreign policy presidency, just for example, and that he could sweep it on a Super Tuesday, and the polling looked that way. He had a Bernie had a great operation, but his numbers were still really good if you had all these people in the field. And so this idea that all these people would jump out of the race and there was going to be this sudden consolidation uh, wasn't taken into account. And uh, really, there was no time for the Sanders campaign to adjust to that environment. So I think that is a huge factor. Um, And so I also think that if a year ago, uh, I think a lot of progressives would have been really happy to have Bernie in this position where he was down to him and Biden and he was in the race. 
and where he had a had still had the best chance in American history to be to have a movement progressive nominee, and not to be disappointed about not having this. We won it all early and put and put the whole thing away. I never thought the establishment part of the party is strong for a reason. It has voters committed to it has a lot of resources, like all the mainline pundits that piled on and helped push people out of the race because they they were hounding every candidate as to weren't they making Bernie Sanders the nominee by staying in the race after South Carolina. So that was a factor. Uh, and there's all sorts of other, th- other factors here and power that are real, that are a reason why a Hillary Clinton uh, kind of uh, leader would more likely be a Democrat nominee than a Bernie Sanders-style leader, right? So given all that, I think Bernie Sanders was always the underdog, and it's like a, being a college basketball game where you're the underdog and you're playing a, a team with all the blue blood talent on it. You're playing Duke or North Carolina or Kentucky to use, if, if for those of you who love college basketball, you feel good that you're in the game coming down the stretch. And so I'll start with that proposition. It seems to me that People are over-interpreted, over-interpreted Biden being out of the game, obviously, but now we're over-interpreting that any knockout blow has been applied to the Sanders campaign. Oh, I, I've, I want to say both. I've never thought that Joe Biden was was really out of this race. I mean, I mean, you'll remember going into Iowa, I was like, I think Joe Biden's going to make a comeback. And people were like, Joe Biden did terrible, Claire, you are foolish. And I was like, no, I think... I think that Iowa and New Hampshire are not great indications of where the rest and even Nevada are like are great indications of where the rest of the country is, is going to be on this. Right. And so I was clearly wrong that he was going to be the moderate candidate that got chosen in those first couple of races. But um, I think that I think this was always very likely going to happen. And you were beca- right in the and, end, and, even yeah. if without the timing. Yeah, and and so um, thank you. Um, if my hair weren't in a French braid right now, I'd be like flipping it. Um, <laughs> and so um, I, yeah, I think this was always um, on the moderate side. It was always Joe Biden's um, race to lose, and the fact that it came together, albeit a little bit later than maybe some folks intended, um, was was very likely to happen. Um, and and I very much feel the same way about Bernie Sanders. I think there was a period of time very early in the year, um, or early in the race in late 2019, um, or at least in the third quarter, um, you know, when it was September, October, um, and folks were trying to make up their mind, Elizabeth Sanders or Elizabeth uh, Warren, Bernie Sanders, and they were kind of trending together. Um, and and then as it gets closer and closer to Election Day and you got to actually cast that vote. Um, yeah, yeah. You know, I think um, people tend to gravitate towards what they know. Um, I it's, it's too soon for me to think critically about why folks made decisions between Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren. Um, I've been pretty clear all along that, like, I flipping love Elizabeth Warren. And part of that is because, like, I'm a, I'm a policy nerd, and so I love plans and whatnot. Um, but also I, I recognize that the majority of folks, uh, you know, plans don't speak to their hearts the way they speak to mine. Uh, and, and I think, you know, Bernie Sanders have being very... Um, uh, disciplined about his his message and the way he ad- advances his policy ideas and whatnot um, has was a boon to him and benefited him um, and, and I agree with your your point earlier that um, is that you know he may be a, a, an underdog overall in the sense of sort of the progressive wing of the party um, having been traditionally a smaller wing of the party um, 
and not um, having it, the it, access to economic power, yeah, corporate yeah. support, and Wall Street or Silicon Valley yeah, but, support. But he did come in with the position of strength, right? He came in with national name recognition and a good fundraising base and, and a group of highly, highly energized um, activists and volunteers um, from, from his 2016 race. So uh, I am not at all surprised that it's down to these two and candidates. So I was, you can replay the Battleground Wisconsin's, I was right about something too, but wrong on the timing, very wrong. I was worried about Bernie being too far ahead because it would hasten the consolidation of the moderate wing, and mm. and that as long as it wasn't consolidated, it was better for Bernie. I actually thought it would be better if Elizabeth and Bernie were more closely matched so that it, w it wouldn't terrify the establishment into consolidating the field. But that obviously happened way faster. I was wrong that they could actually do it that quickly. But that once that happened, uh, you, ha you had a problem. Now, it doesn't mean that Bernie Sanders can't rectify this, but it just changes the race dramatically. But I think um, what I was going to say about Bernie versus Elizabeth, Bernie had a four-year head start. In other words, I think what really sunk Elizabeth Warren is is that there was a 20% that was already with Bernie and wasn't moving. And therefore, and that's why her her support went way up, then went way down. She was around, she was moving with a lot of swinging people who were could move to her and then move to someone else, and some of whom uh, were confused, in my opinion, and thought uh, someone like Pete Buttigieg was actually a progressive, not a moderate, because he kind of tried to be in both wings, uh, for example. Beto O'Rourke tried to be, too, but he was less successful at it uh, than Mayor Pete uh, in trying to have a foot in both sides. And then Elizabeth also ended up trying to change her strategy and her position multiple times, which is usually a bad sign and ends up not working. Uh, as brilliant as she is and as much respect for her as I have, and, and I think she had a tough situation given uh, that she was trying to be the other new progressive in the race. But uh, I was going to say, here's the new dynamic, the last proposition I want to put in front of you. Uh, I think the race is very different now because there wasn't really a pure back and forth between two complete package candidates with personalities representing each of the two now dominant positions in the party. I think that's very healthy. I in totally 2016, agree. Hillary Clinton was trying to say she was a progressive. Now we have this acknowledgement that there, if we were a parliamentary system, these might be two separate parties, right? But they're in our system, there's a two-party system, so they're kind of in the same party together, uh, contesting for control. That now, that before, you had to talk through Amy Klobuchar, Mayor Bloomberg, Elizabeth Warren's there, all this other space. Now, and it happened on election night, uh, Bernie Sanders has started opening up the critique of Biden's entire record, the bankruptcy bill, the trade policies, which are really problematic in the in the key states that that cost Hillary the election, uh, Pennsylvania, Michigan, Wisconsin, uh, the crime bill and other issues. And this sets up a very different dynamic where Biden's moderation is now going to be critiqued in a much more fundamental way, whereas Bernie's alleged radicalism was being critiqued all along by the whole moderate wing. So I think that is one reason it's going to come down in the next couple of weeks, whether this is going to be a highly competitive race, but it really still could be a, a brokered convention. I think um, that it is 
super flipping likely that it is going to be a brokered convention and i am filing that away in the category of future claire problems um which <laughs> which is how i compartmentalize things that i am stressed about or anxious about um but in the last minute here of our segment i want to do a brief immemorium <laughs> for i think the folks who um really were an important part of this race um and that are out now and i feel like i already did that with elizabeth warren i've expounded enough on my like undying love for her um but i i've also been fairly critical on this podcast of pete Buttigieg and me and saying he's you know i just thought that this wasn't really his time and um now that he's officially out i i do want to say that um you know we talked about this being a sort of a momentous year for there being a lot of women running a historic year for that it is totally worth acknowledging that like representation matters and not just for women, but also um, for other populations of folks. And Pete Buttigieg did that for people in the LGBTQ plus community, right? It is, it is pretty um, remarkable. And, and I've talked with friends who are members of that community who have said like, it, it brings warmth and love to my heart to see a man holding the hand of his husband and kissing his husband on the national presidential debate stage and having his husband introduce him the way Michelle Obama introduced Barack Obama, right? Like that means something to people. And I think, I think that that is worth calling out, not that he's out of this race. So if this was an important year, um, I'm glad that happened. I hope that in future years, the last candidates will include more than just straight white men. Thanks for saying that as a gay man. I appreciate you saying that tremendously. And I guess we're not going to uh, say anything about we're, we're worried the billionaires are gone. But with that, we're going to have to take a break. This is Battleground Wisconsin. Welcome back to Battleground Wisconsin. This is Robert Craig, Executive Director of Citizen Action of Wisconsin. I'm Matt Brusky, our usual host, will be back next week. And I, but I'm joined this week as we always are, by Claire Zoutke, the Healthcare for All Director at Citizen Action of Wisconsin. We're going to turn folks to local news, and some of this is fast developing, so we will try not to be out of date by the time you hear this. We record Thursday morning. But there's pretty disturbing news right now in the tragic uh, Miller Coors Brewery shooting, uh, which obviously is of great interest in Milwaukee and in Wisconsin. And that is around the uh, uh, culture of racism, as some are calling it, uh, at Miller Coors. And the information was released originally uh, by the by Miller Coors's communication uh, director themselves, uh, Adam Collins. And so this is uh, Miller Coors coming up and making this public. Okay, this isn't some investigative report where they're denying it. And I'll just quote the Washington Post because we don't want to get any facts wrong here, and this is probably going to be fast developing. The Washington Post says, current and former employees of the Molson Coors Brewery here say there is a long-held culture of racism, so employees say it, right, including racist cartoons placed in workspaces, the N-word scrawled in break rooms and bathrooms and nooses hung up at the facility, one on the locker of an employee who killed five co-workers there last week. Now, we... There may be a lot of employees there of a different perspective. We just know that some have told media that, and that's out in the media, but obviously it's disturbing. But I want to I be clear what we know and don't know. And we now have the Milwaukee uh, police chief uh, saying it is not a factor. And that's a bit of a, of a problem, not because we don't know this investigation may be being carried out very professionally by good police investigators, but frankly, because of our last history of the 40 years of mass incarceration and over-policing 
of African American communities and other uh, communities that are low low income and community of color uh, predominant. Uh, there isn't a lot of trust to police, and so to have these press reports, to have the police, according to other press reports, uh, uh, putting out much less information than, than than is usual in these sort of mass shootings to the public, it just creates a, a very bad dynamic. And I would encourage folks, because as a, as a white progressive, I can say I've not experienced you know racial discrimination and, and harassment or, or what it's like. Uh, but uh, a Citizen Action Wisconsin member, uh, uh, Earl Ingram, who is a morning talk show host uh, in Milwaukee on uh, on Resistance Radio, that's 101.7 FM and 1510 AM in, in Milwaukee, also is up on in the Madison station, I believe, of Resistance Radio, Progressive Talk Radio, did a really good job this morning. So if you went to their website and listened to his podcast, he can say things from personal experience much more direct about what this means. But there's also been a lot of discussion about uh, beginning, in fact, uh, Sunita Jackson, the, the, the earlier morning host, also an African-American host on the same station, had a lot of people talk about the impact of, of trauma when you've experienced a, a, you know, a, a racist environment and, and, and how that could have an impact. Again, they were very careful to point that we don't know all the facts here, but we have some disturbing facts that have come out that are worthy of discussion. So Claire, I think you have some thoughts on that question. Yeah, I think, you know, racism is a white people problem. Racism is a, a, a problem that is incumbent upon white people um, like myself and yourself um, and the people in our community um, who look like us to solve. And this should be a wake up call, um, a reminder for us that um, that there are like very real and long lasting effects um, for um uh, for for racism and and for people who um, experience racism and um, I I don't know where um, or what information the 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 police are using or where they get it from to say that racism was was not a motivation in this um, shooting but um, I I think that we as a community should behave as if um, as if as if it was so that we can we should be be better people and do a better job of calling out people that we see who display this behavior, um, um, calling out people who who do things that are even um, you know less uh, less violently racist than than hanging a noose on somebody's collar, right? I mean, it, if it's you know a comment by a family member at a dinner table or whatever, it, no matter how small, like it is our responsibility to call out um, and and to fight against acts of racism. Um, and um, and hopefully in doing so can can make the world um, a better a better place. This is this is obviously a tragedy and it, it's it's such a challenge to talk about, but it, it's not a tragedy exclusively because of the people who lost their lives. It's also a tragedy because we as a society allowed um, allowed it to get this far, um, both uh, from a sort of you know gun control policy perspective, but also as as a culture that continues to perpetuate white supremacy. So let's leave it there because we, we should pick up this story as we know more in coming weeks on Battleground Wisconsin. And even if it turns out not to have been a major factor in this shooting, and there may be, as usual in these sort of situations, there, there may never be a consensus on that. 
we do have an acknowledgement that a, a, a you know electrician of 17 years had a noose hung on his exactly uh, locker, and this is an acknowledgement from Miller Coors, which certainly has um, you know every interest in not being perceived that way, but they thought they should come forward with it, which I appreciate. That's that's good communications for them to do that, and so we will pick this when we up when we know more. Now, transitioning, and this relates, this, these are tough stories, Claire, uh, transitioning from the mass shooting, which is really shocking to folks in Milwaukee. Though I agree with Reggie Moore, the, the, uh, the anti-violence director in Milwaukee, that we should have this sort of concern about the everyday shootings going on, not just mass shootings. And so he said that on Erlingram's show. And we'll have, as I mentioned Erlingram's show earlier, the radio show, we'll provide a link to the podcast of that particular show I'm referring to on the Battleground Wisconsin uh, website, if it's available. They usually are. If it's not there, it's because it wasn't available, but it should be available. Uh, but we had the state Supreme Court race, we had Justice Kelly, the uh, Walker-appointed incumbent, uh, holding a fundraiser at a firing range a couple days after the mass shooting, and then doubling down and defending and trying to raise more money off the criticism. Uh, Dan Bice in the Walker Journal Sentinel has a story about that uh, in that newspaper. So, Claire, do you have any thoughts on uh, the it's at least tone deaf to have a, a, a shooting range um, fundraiser days after a mass shooting, but I think you'd even question whether it's a good idea for a Supreme Court justice or anyone to have uh, fundraisers at shooting ranges. Th those were going to be my exact same two points, right? Um, it, is, it is most certainly tone deaf, um, but it is also a clear signal of what type of judge he is going to be. Um, and at a time when one of the most hotly and frequently debated issues at the highest levels of our courts is um, laws around uh, gun control. Um, th this is a very clear signal that he is going to be a judge who is not friendly to the types of, uh, of gun control policies that we are interested in advancing because of the, the severe threat um, that these weapons pose to um, members of our community. And then in other news related to the state Supreme Court, the one, as I've pointed out, that invalid validated the lame duck laws, but certainly wouldn't have if a Democratic uh, legislature had done it to a Republican governor just elected, in my opinion. I, again, like the U.S., like right-wing judges at the national level, uh, politicians in robes, the politicians in robes and Chief Justice Rogensack in particular, they've created a special business court and they're trying to create them, I think, Claire, you can clarify this, across the state where the, the, the right-wing chief justice will decide what judges decide uh, cases involving claims against the folks who, shall we say, pay for Supreme Court races to elect right-wing judges. Exact, exactly. So this is a pilot program that was started by the state Supreme Court in 2017 in Waukesha County and eight counties in northern, uh, northeastern Wisconsin. And under the project, certain types of business cases, such as those involving large sums, mergers, corporate grievances, um, unfair competition claims, are heard ex um, specifically by a business court. And all of the judges presiding over that business 
court are chosen by the chief justice, which happens to be um, conservative justice uh, Pat Rogensack. And so, um, uh, so she has declared this to be a massive success and is now expanding the business court to Dane County, um, which of course with Milwaukee County is um, one of the biggest liberal counties, um, liberal leaning counties in the state, um, and has said that she plans to also expand it to Milwaukee County after Dane County is up off the ground. Um, and, and this is causing such a stir in Dane County that the Dane County um, Circuit Court Judge uh, Richard Nice, nice, nice uh, last month uh, resigned as the presiding judge of the court civil division saying that, uh, quote, special business interests are now collaborating with Chief Justice to handpick the judges they want to decide their cases. Dane County Circuit Court will now be required to implement a two-tiered system of ju justice, one for the privileged few and one for the rest of us. So I, I, I think this is really worth us tracking. It's astonishing. It's a very clear example of um, you know, biz the largest businesses and special interest groups having a special court with judges who are friendly to them deciding cases. And I would just add, it should not reassure you when you get your day in court in front of a hand-picked judge by someone who was elected by the very interests that you are suing for damages or malfeasance. Agreed. So that's all the time we have this week on Battleground Wisconsin. Uh, thank you for joining us. And you can find out more at citizenactionwi.org. And you can always ask for Battleground Wisconsin podcast on Alexa and all the other major platforms. So until next week, bye-bye. <laughs>